Hello and welcome to the D&D Roundtable on the Tome Show Podcast Network. I'm your host, James Intracasso. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the show. If you've been here before, do me a favor. Go give us a great rating on iTunes. Seriously, it only takes 30 seconds, it costs you nothing, and it helps us out a bunch. In fact, I read a new five-star rating verbatim every episode. So, go leave us a great rating and make me say anything you want. But keep it clean, people. This is a family D&D news podcast. Today's five-star review comes from Maki Knight, and it is entitled Best RPG Podcast Out There. Maki Knight says, This show is awesome, in no small part due to James and Jocasso's ability to be an awesome host. His style is reminiscent of Tom Merritt, with an ability to keep the talk flowing and not getting bogged down. Don't wait. Get it now. Also... I'm James, and I just love Frozen and have a crush on Elsa. I can't wait to cosplay her. Uh, person, uh, Maki Knight, thank you so much for this review, although if you really knew me, you'd know that I can't wait to cosplay Anna. She's pretty awesome. She's like the hero of the story, kind of. Spoiler alert. Anyway... Maki Knight, thank you so much. We need more five-star reviews, so head on over to iTunes and give us a great rating for The Tome Show. Please use the affiliate links at thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the banners in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then just shop as you normally would. It's that easy, and we get a few pennies from your sale. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, NobleKnight.com. They're a brick-and-mortar game store that also exists online. They have D&D and other tabletop RPGs. Any edition, any product. With Noble Knight, you can even sell your old gaming products that you aren't using anymore. My product pick from Noble Knight for this episode is the D&D Spellbook Cards for the Ranger, because that's what we're talking about today. Uh, I love these Spellbook Cards. They're really, really great, especially when you introduce new players to the game. They don't have to be flipping back and forth through the book. They can keep it open to their class or race section or whatever they need, and they can also have their spells off to the side. Don't get bogged down with having your entire spell list open when you only know three. You just have those three cards in front of you and boom you are good to go this product normally seven bucks is 50 cents off at noblenight.com there is a direct link to it over in the show notes at the tomeshow.com this week we have a very special guest to tell us all about noble knight it is garanthor the black dragon garanthor welcome so much to the round table
Okay, so today we are talking about a revised Ranger class from Unearthed Arcana, and then we're going to talk about a Twitter quote-unquote rant from Mike Merles about sort of the way the game has evolved, uh, and we're going to use that as a springboard for a discussion uh, about the way games have changed. Uh, with me today at this star-studded, all-star-packed roundtable uh, is first the one and only Death of the Four Horsemen, Dan Dillon. Dan, welcome back to the roundtable. Here's our get-to-know-you question. What is one of your favorite RPGs other than an edition of Dungeons & Dragons or Pathfinder? All right. Well, it's uh, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me back. Um, that's a pretty easy question to answer for me because after D&D, the biggest game on my particular radar is going to be Vampire and, and from you know White Wolf and Onyx Path. Uh, and I can even narrow that down a little further. I started with Vampire the Masquerade back in the 90s. And uh, now my favorite is definitely going to be the uh, Vampire the Requiem 2nd Edition that came out in the last couple of years. That's, uh, that's a great iteration on the game. Uh, it's done great things with the themes. Uh, I love it. I've had a lot of fun with it for years. And I actually met my wife uh, at a vampire game that she and some friends were running in college. So it has a special place in my heart. Definitely, if it's the game that introduced you to your wife. Um, <laughs> uh, also with us at the roundtable is Skylar Esau. Skylar, welcome back. Uh, what is one of your favorite RPGs other than an edition of D&D or Pathfinder? All right, so I'm going to go. This is not... One that I've uh, heard a lot about in a while, but Army Ants. Yeah. <laughs> uh, have you ever heard of that? That was a, I, I really liked it. It was a very simple system and uh, it mashed up a couple of concepts that I like. I thought it did a better job than any other game I've ever played of capturing kind of an army squad thing. And then the fact that your ants was amusing and it had like role playing advice, like, if you could pick distinguishing characteristics, like does your ant have both of his antenna or an eye patch, or is he able to speak? <laughs> but the the character creation and uh, all that and the rules, it all it ran really well. I thought it was a really good system. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, that sounds really fun. I'll have to check that out. Uh, and also back at the roundtable, very excited to have Russ. Morrissey with us. Russ, welcome back. It is a pleasure to have you. Uh, what is one of your favorite non-D&D or Pathfinder RPGs? Hello, hello. So thanks for having me back. Right. So this probably changes every day. But today, <laughs> I'm going to go for the original West End Games Ghostbusters RPG from 1980-something, four, five, six, because... That was the first game to ever feature a dice pool system. That dice pool system then kind of moved on to uh, like the Star Wars games, also produced by West End Games and things like that. But that was that was the first um, that was the first iteration of that mechanic. So that is my vote just for today, just because I can see it right now on the shelf. <laughs> Uh, that's a great choice. I did not know that that was the first RPG to use a dice pool system, and I do love uh, RPGs that use dice pools. They are super, super fun to play, and usually simpler for people to understand. Oh, this one's a very, very simple game. Like your character sheet is a basically a credit card sized um, card with, I think, four stats on it and four skills, and that's it. That's your whole character. Huh. That's <laughs> awesome. Sounds like a great one to introduce new players with. So yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, yeah, nice, nice. And uh, finally, uh, we have uh, Teos Abadia with us. Teos, welcome back to the roundtable. 
what is one of your favorite non D and D or Pathfinder RPGs? And I imagine, since I feel like your name is on every other D and D product or adventure that I see coming <laughs> out, uh, that you maybe aren't kind. playing a lot of things that aren't D and D at the moment. Uh, you know, that's that's very kind of you to say that that way, even though that's not factually correct. Um, <laughs> uh, that's actually Sean Merwin's name. <laughs> we get that mistake all the time, but. Uh, so thank you for having me back. That's, it's awesome to be with, with, uh, with you guys talking about uh, RPGs. <laughs> Super fun. Um, you know, uh, the game, there are a couple of games. It's actually a hard choice. Uh, historically, it would be Shadowrun, but I've never loved the rules. Just want to be in that world. Mm. Um, and I love recent games like Shadow of the Demon Lord, Feng Shui, 13th Age. I mean, I could just go on on the shoutouts. But I would have to go with Gumshoe. Um, nice. So I've been running a nice Black Agents game. I've recently gotten my hands on Time Watch, and I played a bunch of it at Gen Con. Gumshoe is so flexible mm-hmm. at giving you these tools for how to just still feel like you're playing an RPG and you get the feel of that meat, but you're rolling a single D6 and you're often doing a lot of storytelling and a lot of player enabling. And I, I love that about the system. Yeah, Gumshoe is awesome. Love Knights Black Agents. I love Bubble Gumshoe, uh, where you're like a bunch of teenagers uh, trying to solve <laughs> stuff. And the battle mechanic is all about like social insults and, and things like that, you know, lowering social status instead of like actual physical conflict, which is really fun. I totally agree. Gumshoe is a great, flexible, fun system. Uh, So why don't we jump right into it? These gentlemen were kind enough to, uh, we were sort of going back and forth, changing topics. We've had this in the works for a little while. And at the time of this recording yesterday, a new ranger dropped in an unearthed arcana article and so the the idea is this ranger obviously right is still in playtest mode they're going to do a survey they're going to get feedback about it we've talked before on this podcast uh, with dan and skyler in fact about how the ranger is one of the most uh, maligned classes uh people think that it was underpowered and it needed to be fixed so um people should definitely go check out the ranger follow along there's a direct link to it over in the show notes at the tomeshow.com uh we are going to talk about the new ranger get all of these people's wonderful opinions about it uh hopefully it won't turn into a a, a crazy debate <laughs> but we'll talk a little bit about right now what's going on uh, uh there is uh there is some stuff like this does not replace the ranger in the player's handbook. It's supposed to be a second option. Uh, if people like it and, and upvote it, it'll be released in a soon-to-be-published product from Wizards of the Coast. And then you can play either this ranger or the other. And then whenever they come out with new options for the ranger, it should work for both. So I imagine we're going to talk about that and a whole lot more uh to kick things off i just want to talk about the base ranger before we get into its subclasses or what are called conclaves in this version of the ranger a lot of features look the same it can still cast spells it's still got d10 hit dice it's still doing its thing but uh i am going to turn it over to dan Dillon. i think to start um and i think it should be noted that it seems like 
for the most part, the Internet's reaction has been sort of overwhelmingly positive about this Ranger, that they like this version a lot more. Uh, there have been certain things pointed out, flaws here and there. But Dan, I I give you that introduction knowing that you disagree with that assessment. Uh, so uh, go ahead, take it away on the base Ranger. All right, so where to start? Uh, first off, I love Conclave as a name. Uh, I like that better than Ranger archetype, so so gold star there. Um, <laughs> as far as the base Ranger goes, I'm a little frustrated with this treatment of it because I feel like they changed abilities that worked well and then left abilities that needed love alone. The Foe Slayer, I'm not a fan of that mechanic, mostly because Rangers don't have an, a, a baked-in need for high wisdom. So making the bonus that Foe Slayer gives you track off of your wisdom never made sense to me. Uh, I know that it's the stat used for, um, for tracking and such, but that makes them very multiple ability dependent because they need strength and or dexterity. They need constitution. And they have wisdom spellcasting, but the ones that require spell attacks or uh, saving throws, in my opinion, just are not very good. And you're better off with their limited spell selection to pick spells that different spells that don't require those. When I look at Ranger, you don't need a high wisdom, so Foe Slayer is not going to do much for you. I would have much rather seen that been uh, having been a flat bonus, either your proficiency or just a flat plus four, something along those lines. So I was disappointed to see that unchanged. Uh, they get half credit for primeval awareness. I think that needed a little tweaking. I am not crazy about the overall direction on how much focus they've put on the favorite enemy. And at the same time have cut one of your total favorite enemy choices. Previously you got three total, now you only get two. Natural Explorer... Uh, I thought it worked very well. They got rid of the concept of favored terrain. Now you just get a bunch of benefits always, all the time. And three of those that were added are just, uh, they, I mean, they're the definition of power creep. <laughs> just at, at what? When do you get Natural Explorer? First level, yes? Yeah. yeah. At first level, they ignore difficult terrain always. They have advantage on initiative checks. And they have the, the ambusher ability that assassins get at level three. They can, on the first round of combat, they have advantage on attack rolls against creatures that haven't acted. That it's, it's the same thing they did with the previous version of a Variant Ranger. They front-loaded it, and it's a little better in this case. The previous one got a level 17 ability at level 1. I don't follow why they're going this particular direction. I, I mean, unfortunately, I do. There was a great hue and cry that the Ranger was underpowered. Um, by and large, this all feels like pandering to me, unfortunately. Sure, sure. And I think, you know, I think it's worth noting a lot of people were saying like, yeah, I would take a level of ranger for any martial focused character, you know, because yeah. of that natural explorer thing. I do also right. think it's worth noting that you only get those abilities when you have been traveling for an hour or more, which I think is one of the vaguest uh, things to say. Only on some of them, though. The ignore right, difficult right. Pain, advantage on initiative rolls and the advantage on attack rolls against someone who hasn't acted, that's all, um, right. that's all the time. Right. And, then, and then the rest of them, those, those are essentially unchanged, except they always happen now. You don't have to pick a favored terrain. Totally, um, totally. I understand why people railed against that a little bit, but in my experience with playing a ranger, I had no trouble. Uh, in fact, I was hard pressed to pick uh, a favored terrain because I had all my bases covered. So I'm just like eh, mountains, I guess. You know, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, 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 I have a hard time relating to some of the criticisms. Um, 
another big issue that I, I wish they would have addressed in the base ranger is their spell casting. I think that's a little it needs a little bit of love, but I won't go into too much detail on that. I know Skylar has some things to say about that, so I'll let him let him take that one. A couple little things here and there. I, I'm not a fan of the change they did to hide in plain sight. I feel like now it should be called hide in cover or obscurement, just like normal. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because they removed the plain sight component completely. Uh, I don't understand why it's existing the way it is in this document or why it's still called hide in plain sight in any event. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, that may have something to do with, it needs to overlap with the current Ranger ability. You know what I mean? Like maybe there's, there's something there with that. I don't know. Well, I don't understand why they changed it. I feel like the existing one in the book is actually good and useful. Uh, This is less useful because it's very static Mm-hmm. And and the name is now misleading because you can't hide in plain sight. You still have to follow all the normal rules for hiding based on what we've been uh, given here. Gotcha. And, and what they what they seem to have traded in is that you no longer have to take ten minutes to do it, which makes it a lot more play useful. But then, yeah, as you said, you're still doing a plain old hide. Uh, and, and the issue with the previous one, where you take some time to build the camouflage. So the the thing I had with that is, do you have to take that hide check immediately, or you, can you basically ghillie suit yourself, and then at any point in the future, you can press yourself up against the wall and hide? Because that makes it awesome. Yeah, and I had read it as the, as the ladder that you camouflage yourself, and then at that point, you can take a hide action by pressing yourself at the wall at some point in the future. Oh, right. I see. Right, right. Yeah. So that's here, here you basically take 10 you're only once for multiple yeah. hide checks. Uh, was it ten minutes or was it one minute? I think it's only it was, one. It was one minute, but that's not a huge uh, right. difference. Oh, yeah. then you only get you can do the one hide check after that point, and then you'd have to do it again. It's, but I think you could uh, camouflage yourself and then you know there's a fight going on, duck around the corner, and then just take an action to hide and you're gone. Yeah, I mean it, I wonder if this new version is intending for you to still be able to hide sort of in the open. It definitely doesn't say it. So that may have yeah, been no, it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. The new version kinda... of that one, depending on what the final published thing is, I think that would be pretty simply adjusted, but we'll see, we'll see what they do on that. Right. Yeah. Just, but you know, all I got to go on is what's in front of me and it doesn't say anything about that, unfortunately. Sure. Yeah. And it's still, still talking about hide. So it still, should still use the hide rules. Yep. Uh, Teos, what about you? What did you think of the base ranger class here? So my first reaction was kind of what's not to like, um, but I did get that feeling that we've added a lot, and it felt a little like the third edition ranger when it went to 3.5, like it was just candy everywhere. Um, I played a ranger in Living Greyhawk back then, uh, straight class, and I remember just getting just endless amounts of hit points and skills I could give it and extra attacks. And it was just, it was Christmas. And this feels a little bit like that. And especially when you may not need it. So I play a uh, ranged ranger, an archer ranger currently uh, in Adventurers League play. And I think I'm like 14th level. And, you know, I don't need any of these things as an archer ranger. Uh, are, you a, are you a hunter? Sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm a hunter. Okay. And, I don't need more damage against, you know, say giants or some type like that. I, I certainly don't need advantage on initiative or ignoring difficult terrain and that kind of stuff. Like that's, that's all just kind of too much candy. Uh, it's all good. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't say no to it, but, um, 
the thing that I really wanted to see addressed, the, the thing that bothers me as a hunter, are the spells. Mm-hmm. Um, the spells ostensibly feel like fourth edition, where you could say, like, hey, you're my mark. Um, I'm doing extra damage on you. But the reality of play is that Hunter's Mark is a concentration spell. And so when I put it on you, now I can't use my other spells that are concentration spells, which feel like they should be the fourth edition Hunter Ranger that could, um, from Essentials, could say, hey, this round I'm going to do a hail of arrows. Next round, a pinpoint attack. Next round, something that kind of controls you. You can't do that because you have to drop the spell. Uh, so now your hunter's mark is useless, and you only have a few spell slots, so, so it doesn't play well. Plus, if I get hit, I have to make a concentration check or lose my mark. And none of that seems to be actually intended by the game and the class. And going back to these spells and either don't make them spells, make them features, or make the spells differently, you know, work differently, it just it all feels like it's, it's the wrong mechanic for what the class should feel like in play. Uh, and I wish they'd gone back and addressed that. Sure. Yeah, I, I totally hear what you're saying about that. You know, I, I think that's a, a really good point and a really good time to throw it over to Skylar, because Skylar, I know you wanted to talk about the spells a little bit. Yeah. So I, I liked Ranger, the old version. I didn't have any problems with it. I felt like the complaints were misguided, most of them. And what you're talking about, though, with the spells was exactly my number one thing that I would have liked to see changed uh, is is the because it's very hard to use ranger spells effectively. You can do it, but the options are limited and like the number of spells that, you know, is very limited. There's a lot of spells that are not great. Uh, Concentration uh, really limits you. And so I was hoping to see something like if, if you gave a ritual caster, that would open up some interesting options for a ranger or do something like what they did with the one conclave where they have a list of automatically known spells so that they can just have a few, like not be so limited in the, in the selection. Uh, Cause that is, is you only get about two spells per spell level. And a lot of the most useful spells are the kind that you use in like a specific situation, but aren't useful in every situation. And so that means it would be even more beneficial if you had a little bit of a greater variety. I also agreed that, yeah, Foe Slayer, I wish they'd mess with that. Uh, And then... Hit the favorite enemy. Yeah, and then the favorite enemies. So they sold me on the concept that favorite enemy shouldn't be a huge combat thing. Because it's hard to balance because then you're either it's not really that great of a bonus. Either you're too good against your favorite enemies or you're not good enough against everything else if you put too much into the favored enemy thing. And I, I kind of bought that argument. I hadn't really thought about it until uh, Fifth Ed came out. Uh, but I thought that was a, a good call. And now they seem to have doubled all the way back hard. And all the Ranger base class stuff is based around favorite enemy and they they doubled down they made primeval awareness uh way better but only for your favorite enemies and the favorite enemy bonuses are yeah really big in combat and you get fewer of them also the favorite enemy selection list looking at it having humanoid is one of the options doesn't seem like a balanced option because it, it seems like in a normal campaign that you're going to encounter a lot more humanoids than the other options on the lower level list. Uh, so that was a little bit of an issue to me because it, it 
feels like it, it'll be hard to not pick that. And, and you know, the, the great example, too, of these things that sound kind of balanced but aren't is, you know, you pick Giants when you're going to play Storm King's Thunder, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well. Yeah, then, and then you've got plus four damage and all that to to a lot of the enemies you're going to fight. Yeah. One of the things that Mike Merles tweeted out about favorite enemy was that favorite enemy does not come at the cost of weakness elsewhere. Balanced, assuming you don't receive its damage bonus, um, which I thought was was kind of an interesting thing for them to say. Just just another tidbit to add uh, to the to the favorite enemy thing. Um, I think that's a bad assumption, though. well yeah especially like teos just said you know if you are playing storm king's thunder and your greater favorite enemy is giants right that's uh, a plus four bonus to damage is pretty great thing to have against all giants that you face since you're going to face a lot of them Um, and and almost all of our storyline seasons you could do that right you could pick your top i'm gonna go with dragons i'm gonna go with undead i'm gonna go you know yeah yeah, totally. Outsiders of some sort. Exactly just done that because we just um, we just started Curse of Strahd. Mm, right. Mm-hmm. His favorite enemy is undead, of course. Yeah. So yep. I think that's going to happen every time. Yeah. So yeah, the, of course uh, it is. Yeah. So the bonuses from Greater Fate enemy, the way it's written now is I, I don't like. It, this isn't a huge mechanical problem, but it's just like a little thing that isn't very well designed. So the greater favorite enemy bonuses are subtly different than the first tier favorite enemy bonuses. And some of them modify the first tier and some of them don't. And I feel like that's a confusing way to do it. Mm. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. Like the, the advantages and and that kind of thing is against your favored, uh, your greater favorite enemies spells and abilities, but you don't have that against, you know, yeah. If let's say and then the, humanoids, right? Yeah. The other thing about favorite enemy and the class in general is that it's of course going to be more popular if they make it more powerful. But just making it more powerful doesn't necessarily make it a better designed, better working class. Sure. So, like the the crowdsourcing popularity contest thing, sometimes I think they go too far with relying on that to figure out if they did a good job or not. Sure. Agreed. Yeah, Russ. Uh, what did you think of the Ranger? Um, I think I, I think I liked it more than a couple of you guys did. Um, <laughs> I'm, I really like the renaming to Conclave. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree that that low level dip to get Natural Explorer, I think, is going to turn into a problem. I think I think a lot of people are going to do that. I haven't actually. Well, obviously, I haven't played it, so I can't. I can't really say how it works out in play but it just sure. it just seems so attractive just as a as a quick dip into ranger now you know rangers are, are different things to different people i mean for one person it's aragorn and for someone else it might be drizzler or something like that and um i know that's what the conclaves are, are supposed to sort of simulate i was kind of hoping for a spellless ranger in there yeah. and we haven't got that yeah and i was i was, I was hoping maybe spells would be you know more integrated with the conclaves rather than as a, a you know a core feature oh kind of like eldritch knight and arcane trickster instead of like yeah i, I mean I, I don't know how that would work exactly yeah like and they definitely have done it with the with the fighter and the rogue you know i was actually kind of hoping to see that too because i think like both of the examples you pulled trisdord and, and aragorn are not spellcasters really in any way <laughs> um, i think it's been a long time since I read Lord of the Rings, but I think he does a little bit, doesn't he? Some healing spells, maybe, or something uh, like that. You know what? You might be right. Yeah, healing hands. I can't yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. He like lays hands on someone. But some of that I think is linked just because he's a king or something like that in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Sure. Isn't it? It's, sure. uh, it's not necessarily a ranger thing. Right, right. Yeah. Right, but so, that, tran- that translation from that story to D&D, the, the way they represented that was through spellcasting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So and, it was... His, his spellcasting is definitely weaker than a D&D ranger's. Agreed. I mean, when all the spellcasting in Tolkien is weaker than everything in D&D. That's, that is true, yeah. yeah. That, that's part of that, yeah. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't actually looked at the new Middle-earth rules yet. Be interesting. Uh, not yet, it. not yet. Yeah. When uh, 3.5 came in, the change from 3E, one of the uh, things they mentioned was that they had specifically changed the ranger after watching, back then it was the new you know, Lord of the Rings movie, mm-hmm. and seeing him track on the run and you know, do all these various things made them go like, oh, we've got to beef up the ranger. I thought it was really hilarious. You know, like they went to the movies and said, we need that in our ranger. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of taking cool images like that, particularly cinematic images, and then translating them into games because that's that's just a great way to to capture imagination. Yeah. Do you think you know, they've done that here, Joel? Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, I, I think there was. Can you see Aragorn in that in this new Ranger? Oh, I could see Aragorn in the Player's Handbook Ranger. So. Right. That's that's kind of a I don't know that's that's not a good comparison for me. Uh, I feel like they did a great job with the out of the book ranger uh, with basically everything except the presentation. I think they screwed up the presentation a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I think I think the Beastmaster out of the player's handbook is hard for people to understand for a variety of reasons. We're not into conclaves quite yet, but when I see people you know setting off fireworks and screaming hooray about the new Beast conclave that tells me that they did not understand the Beastmaster. Mm, I think, I don't know, I think the Beastmaster was a little weak before. <laughs> I, I disagree. I think, it, I think it has, there's a couple of valid criticisms, uh, and some of those were addressed in the new write-up. And I like, I like, I see the direction they were going with the, the Beast Conclave, and I like the idea behind it, but there's a couple of in- implementations that I don't, that, that I feel like they're addressing people's distaste with how the beast worked, but it's more of a lateral thing. It still ends up being roughly the same, if not in some areas a little worse. Well, I think, you know, I think this is probably the perfect time then to start jumping into conclaves. The beast one is the one that we really need to talk about. Can I pause and just talk about one core thing? Oh, yeah, please, please. Please. And it kind of goes back to this idea of the flavor that Russ was addressing. So, like, primeval awareness... Um, is kind of a, an evolution from this commune with nature spell from third edition. And so this core ability lets, let you before, I think you spent a spell, and then you would kind of reach out into the world and you would sense like whether a favorite enemy was around there. But they've kind of now evolved it to where you, you don't spend a spell and they've increased it from a mile to five mile scan. And now I think it's... Um, uh, is it now? I forget whether now it's a, a favorite enemy or if it's all types. Now it's only your the favorite new, enemies. Okay, so now it's yeah, only the new your ones favorite. favorite enemies. The player's handbook was was not all types, but a lot of types. A lot of the types. So you know, it, it's an interesting change. It also lets you 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 can also use the same ability to um, kind of do an empathic read and communication with an animal. And I think that's a kind of cool thing along the lines of what I want favorite enemy to do actually right is more of this sort of like show the party that my character 
you know, has this deep connection to nature, but not in a druid way, but kind of in its own sort of, I'm of the land, I'm a tracker, I, you know, I, I hunt these certain types of creatures. Like this to me really worked well uh, and is cool and, and better than the, you know, damage bonus or anything like that. Uh, especially when as an archer hunter, I don't need it. I half like this treatment of primeval awareness. Uh, I like the beast empathy thing. That's just cool. Uh, and it also, Skylar mentioned the the spell issues with you're very limited in how many spells you can take. And if you're going to be dealing with animals a lot through animal friendship and, and conjure animals, then you really need speak with animals if you want them to do anything other than run around and attack whatever you can find. Um, and so that was kind of like uh, attacks on your already very, very limited spell selection. So I like that Primeval Awareness allows you to just kind of do that, and that's very cool. Um, I don't like the narrow, tight focus on only working with your favorite enemies with the uh, the, the detection portion of it. Uh, I kind of wish they would have kept the old rule where it gives you a sense of what is or is not within range and then maybe also gives you rough distance and direction if they're your favorite enemy. I would have liked to have seen kind of a, a split difference there. Does that work in urban environments? I'm just reading it, it now. It works absolutely anywhere. So basically, a ranger could stand in the center of a city <laughs> and if they've chosen humanoid as their favorite enemy, they know the location of every single humanoid within that city. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, they have the Census Bureau. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea is, you, you know, you, you know the direction and you know there are groups. So I think as a DM, you could say things like, yeah, you know that people congregate in the city hall. You know that this tavern is way more popular than this other one. Okay. It reveals which of your favorite enemies are present, their their numbers, and then their yeah, general direction right. and distance. You know, there are 45 people in that tavern, and there are 52 over in that brothel over there. You, you know don't what? know their location that specifically. You know general direction and then distance in miles. Oh, so you that. know, like, they're about a mile away. They're less than a mile away. They're two miles away. That kind of which, thing. Which, honestly, I think is cool, right? So one of the things that is funny about Aragorn is that scene when he puts his, his head to the ground mm -hmm. to hear where the riders <laughs> are coming from. And he shares this info about, you know, which is like, it's like as if he casts a spell. It's so amazing that he's able to pick this up. Mm. And then, you know, Legolas goes, well, they're exactly this number because I can see them that far away. <laughs> yeah. Right? And that's the worst is when you have these abilities that other people can beat. And right. so if your job is to kind of know exactly where this stuff is, then they did that right here and that you do, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I, I like this much better than the old primeval awareness. Um, one of the things that really irked me about the old primeval awareness was because you didn't know a direction in which these creatures were. You just knew if they were within a mile of you. Um, when you were in your favorite terrain, you know, you, you would know within six miles but that's almost worse in some respects, you know? Um, like, it's cool to know within six miles, but you didn't know where or, or how close or anything like that. When they were within a mile, you at least had a smaller radius, you know, that you need to cover a smaller area. Skylar, you want to take this one? <laughs> yeah, so in that way, that is interesting. I don't want to spend too much time on primeval awareness because it wasn't... I have the exact same problem that you just said. Uh, as I was playing the ranger, I actually found it more useful than I anticipated. And one of the big things was, so you use it and you detect like quite a large list of creature types, whether they're there. And you're right, like learning that they're there doesn't 
give you that much information that you can really act on because you don't know where they are or if they're all that close. But it is useful to know what isn't around because um, if you don't detect like a dragon, then you know you're not going to be seeing a dragon anytime soon. It also depends on how much information you already had about the area. But yeah, getting kind of a list of everything that's around uh, was more handy than I thought it was going to be. One one thing I found with the spells is, you know, some of these like fourth level spell slots where you can like locate a person and things like that. It's such a huge burn of a spell slot and a spell choice that having this frees up some of those precious slots, which is nice. Yeah. 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 It's yeah, those spells known. That is a that's just a bear. <laughs> yeah, ranger spells are just in general such a pain. It, it's so hard. You get excited. Oh, I get X level spells. Oh, there's nothing there. Okay. They have a handful of really powerful ones that add stuff like like conjure animals, pass without trace. Those are like the two big ones to me uh, that that add a whole lot. And then uh, and then for some rangers, hunter's mark. It depends on what your uh, thing is. Uh, and, and then yeah, and then a lot of them are more situational or or like not useful at all. Like I'd love to see some of those just kind of folded in as non-magical abilities, maybe in or spread over some of the conclaves or something like that, rather than being spells. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could you could sort of reskin them slightly in some places to make them non-magical, like conjure animal or something like that. You could, yeah. And, and Hunter's Mark is probably the one I hear most commonly tapped for that sort of treatment. Like hunters should just get the ability to Hunter's Mark things. I hear people say a lot. Oh, sure. That's a that's yeah. like a fourth edition holdover, right? I mean, why, why is it a spell? It, it doesn't serve any real benefit as a spell and it suffers all these mechanical problems by virtue of being a spell mm-hmm. yeah rangers I mean, are also bad at concentrating which kind of bites for them since so yep. the best spells are concentration yeah yeah and the uh when you bump it up in level you don't get a damage increase you get a duration on tracking a creature away from you which basically never happens you get the du- the duration on the spell just being around so you can move it to new targets as you go through the day so, so that's that's the main issue. The tracking thing for me is a throwaway. Get into the beast uh, conclave. Also, I'm going to say you'd said that you probably like the new class better than I do. I actually so the the way I've been talking about it has been kind of critical, but I actually do think it was a well designed base class, and yes. the redesigned Beastmaster one is is basically a well designed path. Uh, it's more that maybe I like the player's handbook one better, so. But I, I do think that that they did a pretty good job with it uh, overall, especially since it's just the first draft. Mm-hmm. Um, my problems, that said, with the Beast Conclave, the big ones, I have a couple of big ones that I Jump hope in. that they... Yeah, all right. Number one problem is that the, the, the list of the beasts to take is not a very good, like, prototypical ranger companion list. Mm-hmm. You've got Wolf... And which is great. That's a classic one. And then you've got like mule and ape, which don't really. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why. Like, I'm not saying. Can we talk about why mule is on this list for a minute? <laughs> I I actually is- I'm so glad you brought that up because there were some like I I know people had a big problem with you couldn't get a bear and now you can get a bear, which I thought was I like you cool. can get a bear. Yeah, yes. but they they got wolf and bear, mule- but yeah. What? Mule. And and it's much more limited now what you can take. And if you follow the current guidelines, you can't take any other good companions because like like four out of five of the ones that they listed actually don't meet their own guidelines for what would be a good 
uh, animal companion. And the old one, also, it's completely not very viable to take like a tiny or small animal companion anymore, which which bugs me. Yeah, that's what I noticed mainly. Yeah. Yeah. Do a yeah. hawk. Uh, so that bugs me a lot because like the whole the most important thing to me about the Beastmaster was that you have like a unique options for your beast companion. Um, And Skylar, I just want to, just for the listeners, uh, stop you real fast and just say, right, that there's a sidebar um, about expanding companion options. So that's what you're referring to when you say it doesn't meet their own guidelines. Yeah, one of the cutoffs is that they can should only be able to do eight damages, eight damage in in an attack, which most of the things on their own list do more than eight damage potentially in an attack. So I don't know if they, I don't know if they meant um, on average or or what, or if they just, you know, didn't... They just need to loosen up that language a bit. It says, as a rule of thumb, anyway. They yeah. Just, yeah. You know, add a sentence there, just saying it's completely up to the DM. If the DM's happy with you to yeah. have whatever, then, um, then go for it. Yeah. But then on the larger things, that like, yeah, now if you take, like, a Bloodhawk, it has very few hit points, um, because the hit points of the beast are now based on its hit dice, and mm. tiny things get a D4, so it, you you pretty much can't take a, a hawk anymore. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, maybe, um, it a, maybe it needs a minimum hit point cap or something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like the old way they did it was was fine, although maybe a little on the low end. Uh, the other problem I have, I hate that they lost extra attack mm-hmm. uh, yeah, as a class feature. I don't like that at all especially because they didn't do anything to have the beast be able to cut uh, damage resistances. Um, right. So now yeah. you've got two problems. Yeah, one is that when you're running up against the damage resistance thing, it used to be that you could just use your extra ranger attack then instead of the beast attacking. Uh, now you don't have that option. And then also the problem of what if your beast gets, you know, gets killed for some reason. Uh, one of my defenses of the old design was, well, Yes, that could happen, but you're still a pretty full-functioning ranger. Now you're a ranger with one attack, which is not good. Um, not good at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so those are my my criticisms of it. Uh, I really like the ability score increase thing. I really like that your proficiency bonus adds to uh, everything that the beast adds its proficiency bonus to. That was actually a house rule that I already did. Oh, and I hate also that it... I think I mentioned this thing. I hate that it goes on its own initiative and that's from running the game. It just adds time to the round and I feel like that's a yeah, that's not a good call. I, I can see yeah. that being household a lot. It also makes it uh, very problematic. One of my favorite things about it was particularly being a small ranger was riding your beast companion and that had just such great synergy because you you know you, you didn't kind of follow the normal mount rules for that <laughs> so it, the the way the beast companions worked since you traded one of your attacks for one or more beast companion attacks it worked really well to be like you know a, a halfling riding a wolf uh, and then you and your wolf buddy could fight together really, really effectively. Now, with your companion rolling its own initiative and going on its own turn, now that doesn't work anymore, right? Now it actually functions like the normal mount rules, which is if it's gonna, if you're gonna control it and decide where it goes on your turn, then it can't attack, and and that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, One thing I'm keen on is the resurrection bit. 
Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Yes, that that was a, a little bit of um, a little bit of a sticking point from the old one because the flavor of the class was very much like you have formed a bond with this beast and it's your buddy and you guys are going to go have adventures together and you got each other's back. But then it turned into a situation where, well, Fluffy died. Better go find Meat Shield Seven, right? <laughs> and, and, and so I love that they put the provision in that you can get your actual same wolf buddy or whatever back up to to fight another day. I like that a lot. That's just a theme. Yeah. Very thematic and and very positive. That was that's that, that's a really good really good call out. Definitely. One thing um, on this idea of the beast, you know, they've taken away or tried to move away from the choice of out of the entire list of beasts in the monster manual, trying to choose the most optimum to sort of choosing a core like and the idea that they can advance. Yeah. Like the mule. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. But, we've yeah, traded the, the giant poisonous snake for the mule. I think we can now oh. go to the, uh, instead of the elephant room, it can be the mule in the room, you know, when you've got yeah. a, <laughs> some design issue. Um, but, you know, so this makes me think of my feedback back during D&D Next uh, around the Druid which and Wild Shape, which is, you know, do we really want players sitting there pouring through all these books? You know, what is it that you really want as a player, right? And what you want to do as a player is you want to feel like this creature is effective and does stuff. So, you know, whatever it is, if it's a pot-bellied pig or a mule, I need it to be <laughs> cool, right? And... Uh, on the other hand, you know what I'm looking for is that I get the flexibility to still tell that story. And if it's too OP, and I'm going to be, you know, an idiot for choosing the pot-bellied pig, then I'm I'm in, you know, now I'm suffering or my party's suffering, you know, something along those lines. So what I always would would write in on these feedback forms is that what I really want to see is let me describe this thing as whatever I want mm-hmm. and give me the stats that should really be there. I don't know why I need actual beast stats from an actual beast. Like let's just let's just lay it out on the line. You know, per level I get X stats and you know here's what it does. Uh, I think that would be just great. Yeah, you uh, know, um like a modular beast too maybe that it's like, hey, if you want to yeah. fly, you know, you can take flying or you could take extra movement speed or you can use it as a mount. Like maybe there's some options that you could put on to a beast then. Uh, that was just a like a base beast stat, right? Yeah, yeah I would have been happier with the abbreviated list if it was a if it was like a a better more diverse list. <laughs> there's no flying companion on there. Yeah, yeah that's a big one. If you could just get that choice down to a, a thematic choice and a statistic bit, I think that's better than forcing people to look through things. Because, you know, like you take away multi-attack. Multi-attack is part of the balance of monsters. So already those monsters are now just not super... Those those monsters sort of fall out of favor now, whereas once they were in favor. And it, we're all just talking about sort of statistic balancing bits that aren't really part of what we're trying to get after, right? We're, I don't know. It, it ends up being a trap of how we play rather than what we really want at the end of the day, which is to feel cool about whatever our thematic choice is and be able to tell that narrative of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're I agree that was right. one of the big weaknesses of the old style Beastmaster is that in order to figure out what you were doing, you had to go through every beast in the monster manual and to look at your options. And I think that was what... Uh, I think that caused a big disconnect and was one of the big reasons it was not a popular class or is not a popular class. And it's one of 
And one of the worst things to do to new players is, you know, they go, hey, you know, I'm going to use the whatever. And they go and you say to them, oh, that's no good. That's a really bad choice. Right. Right. And they wait, what? I thought this game was imagination and, you know, make my dreams come true. No, no, man. You've got to use a crag hammer. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've actually I've been thinking about this a lot because my wife is getting ready to play her first D&D game ever. And she Ooh. wants to play a ranger. Um, and, you know, I, I was talking about this podcast coming up and now there's new ranger rules and everything and she wants to have a beast and uh she said well can i have like a magic beast uh and i was like well yeah i mean there's no reason we can't reskin any beast right to be uh, a magic bear or uh you know a, a, an ape that uh that speaks or, or whatever it is that that we want to do as dms or, or whatever as long as it's not totally game breaking right it would be nice to have the tools to do that and something where it was a, a base beast that you could maybe as you level up or whatever add different features to now it's got a poisonous bite now it's claws count as magic for overcoming damage reduction or whatever would be kind of cool um russ what did you think uh, about the beast master mm, um other than what i've just said <laughs> oh sorry sorry <laughs> um no i i i I like it. I, I think it's I think it's stronger than it was before. Um, uh, one of my players, as, as I mentioned, just started playing a um, ranger in our Curse of Strahd campaign, and his very very first question to me was, "Is that really it for the Beastmaster?" Mm-hmm. This is the old thing. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing what he thinks about this. I'll present this to him on Thursday tomorrow. Yeah, I no, like that your beast gets tougher, uh, you know, and obviously they got tougher in the last one. But I think if you pick one, uh, provided it's not a tiny beast, right? The they they probably are a little bit hardier than the previous Beastmaster beasts. Yeah, and yeah. the saving throws help a lot too. Yeah, yeah. So I would like uh, to however, see a way to overcome know, DR. So, like the way I had it run is, I would try to have the beast kind of stick and move in various ways and you can't do that now because they have to stand next to whatever they're fighting because one of their attacks is a reaction attack so they have to like be up there standing in melee now like mechanically which i also don't love i think maybe i'd like to see a bit more non-combat stuff with the beast it is, it is all we've got we've got coordinated attack beast defense storm of chlorine fangs <laughs> it's all it's all combat isn't it oh yeah it gains proficiency in two skills of your choice, so you could you have some uh, utility option there. Right. Uh, I, I'm sad that you don't add your proficiency to the beasts anymore for these things, because that cuts one of my favorite things from the player's handbook ranger, and that is the giant passive perception you can get with some of the, like the wolf, for instance. The wolf at level three, after you account for its keen senses, it has a passive perception of 20. That is mm. huge. That, that Beastmaster is hard as hell to sneak up on. Well, I definitely uh, agree. I'd love to see a, a few more maybe non-combat things, although you should take performance for your beast. Your beast should be proficient in performance. Uh, I wouldn't mind seeing some kind of mental link in there so that you can use the beast senses as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be really cool. Uh, this is some of the stuff that maybe you can do with your familiar. Yeah, like, like the way a yeah. totem barbarian can ritually cast the, uh, the beast senses spell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, like Game of Thrones, where uh, what's his name? Sees through the eyes of his, uh, his wolf. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. He's warging nice. them. Yeah, and yeah. and that again speaks to the freedom of of choosing what you want. Right, like if you had a monkey, like how fun would that be? Right, <laughs> <laughs> monkey yeah. animal companion. That'd be super. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, and it, yeah, it helps shape the personality of the ranger too, right? Yeah, which is so cool. You know, the other the other conclaves. Um, just because I want to sort of keep moving along here, uh, the hunter conclave is very very similar to what it is. It's, ident- it's identical. I don't yeah. think a, I don't think a single letter has changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah except the Nothing extra changes. attack, right? Um, right, right. I think but, it but syncs up it to you. better with the new version of the base class than it did with the old one, also. Mm-hmm. But we'll see. The extra attack isn't part of the core, but now it's given to you with right. uh, that conclave. So, so it ends up being the same. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, but all the uh, actual hunter features, like hunter's prey and defensive tactics, I believe all of those are exactly the same as they were in the uh, the player's handbook. So. Yep. And the deep stalker conclave is very similar to what we saw in Unearthed Arcana. Did you do a comparison on those? I didn't to see if they uh, changed. So luckily, uh, our friends at Tribality uh, did did a breakdown for me, and uh, yeah, you can definitely check it out. We'll link that article over at the uh, the TomeShow dot com. Brandis Stoddard uh, did. Uh, did one and it's great um basically the the big difference there is uh you gain dark vision out to a range of 90 feet now uh so that's that's something that is new uh and uh other than that it's it's pretty similar um instead of letting you hide as a bonus action because you get that now as part of vanish in the core uh makes you better at hiding from creatures with dark vision um so that is really cool by the way like that yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, great for you know if if you're going Rage of Demons, right? Uh, and and playing Out of the Abyss, uh, this is a great ranger to be playing. Um, oh yeah. So uh, so yeah yeah. Well, but it, any uh, any time really, you're always going to be in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> I really you know, like I, this. So before we go, certainly we want to know what people out there think of the ranger. Hit us up at facebook.com slash the tome show or in the show notes for this episode at the tome show.com. And there's one other thing I want to talk about. Mike Merles um, during Gen Con talked about how it was pretty incredible that a lot of people went to see Critical Role live. Uh, you know, over 1,500 people uh, sold out a theater in Indiana to watch that happen. <laughs> Uh, And he talked about how RPGs have changed, Um, that, you know, it used to be uh, you were designing for RPGs so you could talk about them while you weren't playing for them, basically. And that was the the days of everybody hopping on the forums and in chat rooms and stuff talking about them. And then once live play came out, there was this rise of it became more storytelling focused because it was more about how you were actually playing and that game design for games has shifted. Now, certainly there have always been games that have had a huge storytelling focus and there have always been games that have a very crunchy mechanical focus, uh, you know, that, that you can always find those. But I sort of want to talk about, in general, use that conversation as a springboard to talk about how game design has changed over the years and sort of where is it now? What are we seeing now that are the trends and where people want to innovate? And I, Russ, I can think of no better person than to start with uh, than you because you play many games, you read many games, you design your own games, you run EN World, uh, so you look at people talk about games constantly, you're watching live play, you're doing all this stuff. This is your your bread and butter. You eat, breathe, and sleep RPGs. Uh, how do you think game design has changed over the years, and where is it right now? Oh, just as a slight... I haven't seen an awful lot of the live play, 
Um, I've seen a couple of critical roles. I think I've seen one acquisitions incorporated. So to be honest, I'm not I'm not an expert on that. <laughs> but yeah, I think Mike Mills does have a point that with the rise of all these different ways of playing and the ways that designers themselves, mm-hmm. rather than sort of reading, you know, you know, when you I, I've had this experience myself when you when you write some rules, people then go and read the rules and then tell you why they think rules won't work. And you've, <laughs> you, as a designer, have play tested them, and uh, you, you, you know, you believe that your experience playing them doesn't match what they think their experience is going to be. Did that make sense? Sure, yes, it does. Sure. Yes, yeah, but, yeah. much but when like we're actually, doing right now. <laughs> indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So when you actually watch people playing the game, um, I think that's a really, really incredibly useful tool for a designer. I mean, I. When I when I've designed, I one thing that I don't often get chance to do because I run play tests myself. I don't really get chance to watch someone else running my game, and so because when you run your own game, you know exactly how it works. Um, your approach to it is going to be very different to someone who's come into your game on their own, mm-hmm. reading the text that you've written down, and and it's really interesting to see what someone actually does with that, as opposed to what someone tells them they think they're going to do with that. That that's a that's a great point uh, from a design standpoint because, like you said, you know what you meant. It was in your head. You know, you, you have all your you know your assumptions and everything you were thinking, yeah. and you so both to you, set rules. To you, it's clear. Absolutely, and yeah. it's a great test to see if you accurately communicated what you wanted to when you let somebody else who doesn't have that in their head yeah. read it and then put that into practice and see so, what comes so out. It's like someone else run your own game. I think is. I think it's, I think it's a gift. It's brilliant. Um, I don't think many designers get to do that, but those that do, and I think Wizard of the Coast are in a great position where they can just watch hundreds of them because there's you know there's loads of stuff out there now, isn't there? Yep. For them to watch, so they, they they can really watch exactly how that game is running, where people are stumbling, what what people are getting wrong, where people are stopping and looking things up, all that sort of stuff. They can see it right there in front of them. Another big challenge to game design, like you're talking about, is that like probably over half the time the people playing the game haven't actually read the rules. You know, one thing I will say is that um, this idea that suddenly we can see what games are like is, you know, it is true, but it's a little overstated in the case of D&D and some of the other games where you've had a pretty strong, not pretty, you've had a tremendously strong organized play program Mm -hmm. um, for decades. And the ability of designers to go out and see how the game is played, you know, it's always been there. And Wizards and TSR have gone hot and cold on how they participate in organized play. Like, I was really happy to see, you know, uh, right on this Unearthed Arcana where, where he, they write, and you know, probably it's Mike writing it, that for Adventures League, you'd be able to play this if you wanted to, right? A total acknowledgement that the program exists. But there mm. were years in third edition that basically nobody in the company that was employed at that time participated in organized play or cared about it or even liked it. Um, they were kind of against it. And yet, if you talk to them, it was really clear they barely knew how their own game ran. Mm-hmm. Huh. They had no idea how the game worked at the ground level because when they played, they did stuff in all kinds of wacky, wild ways, somewhat the way that when you watch you know, Perkins run Acquisitions Incorporated, and you have, you know, two hours of combat and no one rolled initiative, right? And that's, a that's a different thing, though, isn't it? That's, it's, that's an but, entertainment. Yeah. yeah, no, and absolutely. And, and, that's, and it's great for the game. 
but this idea that you know it's been hard to see how your game is played, you know, okay, well, sort of. Wizards of the Coast, but but you know, the industry's not you know filled with companies the size of Wizards of the Coast with giant organized play programs. No, but you know, Derek Guter, who does event management for Gen Con, is constantly mm. reaching out to designers saying, "Hey, you've got to run your game at Gen Con. That there are two random people." offering to run a game of your system and mm. there are all these people trying to get those tickets right all these people because what he does is he now runs a comparison of the demand people who put an event in their wish list versus the supply of how many tables you offered and for a lot of these games you just can't land those tickets right it, it's it's like playing the lottery <laughs> the right. real, you know the scratch and win lottery you're just not going to win um and that's an unserved demand, but also an, uh, a missed opportunity for the game to the, the game creators to go out and interact with with their fans, see how the game's actually played. There's always mm-hmm. been this ability; they've just not taken the choice to do so. Mm-hmm. So you know, yeah, live play is great, but it's still limited, uh, and still for other games. You know, how many live play sessions are there? Of you know, I don't know, pick some smaller game system, right? There aren't that many. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's an advantage I think Wizard of the Coast definitely has. Yeah, yeah, it, it for sure is. You know, especially when when you think about playing games as entertainment, um, it's like, well, maybe something with a big, robust combat system like D and D is not necessarily the most entertaining game to watch without the right players, right? Without the right actors kind of mm. acting out those parts. Well, um, without the right script. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, so watching someone actually play D&D probably is 90% of the time boring, <laughs> even though it's, <laughs> it's fun to play. I don't know that it, it, you know, unless you, yeah, intentionally dress it up, then I don't think it's uh, it's yeah. much but of the, a... We're talking about two different things, though. We're talking about live play stuff that's there for people to watch and enjoy, and we're talking about designers whose right. job it is to watch the live play. And, you know, if it's boring, that's, you know, it's probably part of the job. But, <laughs> yeah, sure. still for sure. a designer, sure, that would be great for them to for them to see it. I was just, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would be willing to say that the real impact of live play is not that wizards can watch these games but that they are forced to participate them when in them when you force you know mike to run as many games for a live audience as he's had to over the last three years you force perkins to do this you know on a weekly schedule and to think through acquisitions incorporated games and then you've got matt mercer and you're interacting with him to to develop programs and then these other Staff members, you know, Greg Tito ran a game, you know, all these different guys are forced to run a game in a public way. So they can't just go crazy off script entirely. They've got to try to run the rules as you're supposed to. And they've got to think about their audience. They're basically forced to be doing organized play uh, in, in a sense. And that is a huge effect that you've got to play your own game. There were third edition years and designers that they were just were not playing their own game. And that's why they designed it in ways that were just bizarre. <laughs> yeah. And I say that with all the politeness towards the fantastic things they created. Thank you very much. Yes, indeed. <laughs> sure, sure. And, and, you know, I think a lot of that also had to do with, you know, if, if they're not going to live play, if they're not doing that, they're going to write the forums to see what people are talking about. They weren't having these big surveys, so they were looking at, oh, you know, people really like, 
this, let's make a prestige class about throwing objects. And now well, we have this thing, class. Wizards of the Coast does rely very heavily on surveys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They don't, you know, what, whatever, I can't remember exactly what Mike said, but um, when he was saying that um, watching live play was becoming the primary way of learning, you know, how people play, they do, you know, they do a lot of surveys, don't they? They do. They do. Yeah, that whole thing was massively surveyed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But so you know, again, not, that's where they. Like they don't do that. <laughs> and that would be one of my points that I want to bring up about how games, the games industry, has changed. Is that there's this push lately, at least depending on where you look, toward a model of open design, like they did with the D and D Next play test. Uh, and then like uh, Onyx Path is doing with a lot of their upcoming products for the World of Darkness and Chronicles of Darkness lines, where they say, here's our here's our first draft of this set of mechanics from this book. Yeah, yeah. Use them, play them, come on the forums, tell us what you think. We want to know. Uh, that creates engagement and buy-in with the audience. That's going to make them more likely to buy the book if maybe a suggestion they threw out there gets integrated. Uh, it's going to make them more excited. They're going to tell their friends. And it's going to make an overall better product because you're getting stuff that's vetted and tested before it hits the shelf and then you know you have you have people with with a few of these books looking at them previously going how the hell did this spell make it in what were you thinking why are you trying to destroy my campaign right (laughs) and it generates excitement and becomes an event right like a kickstarter you sell more books when you do a kickstarter even if you already have the money to produce it because it becomes an event People take part in it. People can, you know, tweet about it and people can uh, engage with like, oh, did you do this? Well, I got this. And, you know, it's it's the same thing. That D&D Next playtest, everybody you talk to who was involved with games was playing it, was talking about it. And whether they loved it or hated it, you know, was was talking about it when each packet dropped and that sort of thing. But I think there's a free advertising point because, you know, a design of a, a game is also an art form. And often an art form is best designed as the, the singular vision of a maybe a single creator is definitely has its own value as well. Uh, yes. It might not be as, as wide, you know, as popular and widespread and mainstream and broad as maybe some other games. But I think that, you know, when, when an artist puts down, whether, whether it's a painting or whether it's a piece of music or whether it's a role playing game or a novel or whatever, when they sit down and, what you what the audience is getting is that artist's singular vision. That's also, you know, something you lose when you kind of design by committee like that. True. But, and I think one of the things that Mike is talking about is that live play is exemplary of and not just the only factor, but exemplary of the greater connectivity and awareness we have. So that in the olden days, you might play. You know, if you talk to any of these old designers or even our own stories. You know, someone like Jonathan Tweet will talk about how he had no idea how to play D&D. So he just cobbled something together that he thought was how you play. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that was kind of his formative years, his most, you know, his first uh, attempts is just not even right. And so that's his initial opinion is whatever he decides to take out of it. Then later he goes and plays with some other groups and starts to adjust what the game is. You know, and that's not the case anymore. So you're not designing in a sort of vacuum. You're designing with all this really wide understanding of how people play other games. And you can very easily see a live play of Dread to get an idea for that kind of thing or Cypher systems. You can you can get a, a really good look at all these different factors so you're not 
just off of your original mindset, there's more of a group think taking place. It's also probably interesting to see how different play styles and different group styles, different groups approach the same game. Yeah. Because and that's another the, great the one for organized play. They be wildly different to each other in their approach to how they run and how they play a game of D&D. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's another thing that gets uh, with the the interaction with the uh, people playing the game and the, the crowdsourcing ideas and the general playtest. I feel like there's like a relatively smaller community that actually participates on the forums and that kind of stuff. And then it, it kind of creates an illusion that that is how it's being played everywhere. And there's actually quite a lot of people uh, who are playing the game differently that you don't, that it's harder to see and that it gets, uh, and that then when you're trying to have a conversation online with someone, uh, sometimes they they feel like, oh, everybody does it this way because they don't realize what a small subset of people you're actually interacting with um, on the online community. True. That's a good point. But that online community still does have a variety of opinions in it, though. It's not, it's not like it's a small subset of people all saying the same thing, is it? Well, I so it's not exactly like that, but yes, I'm saying that sometimes it's a bit like that. That there's a relatively small subset of people who drive a certain narrative or conversation about a game, and then it kind of within the online community becomes an accepted fact. And then that the way the game's actually being played uh, doesn't necessarily match up to that as much as people think. Mm, that's interesting. We'll have to look out for that. Yeah, yeah well, it's like like other other times, yeah, it's more varied, but yeah. Some, well, like some as a for instance, the the fifth edition, the Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition group on faith, Facebook has about twenty five thousand members now. We run uh, reports on activity and such, and the vast vast majority of those people are not active. Um, so you, you figure most of them are just lurking, right? Uh, what we what it boils down to, Facebook clicked like once in the last doesn't necessarily mean they're. Well, sure. But when we're talking about engagement, people who are, you know, who are posting, who are commenting on posts, who are liking posts, that sort of thing. Um, it, it's a it's a relatively small number of the people who are actually engaging in the discussion. Now, there's a lot of people who are viewing. So, you know, information is getting out there. But it, it, this kind of goes to Skylar's point in, in at least in this instance in particular. You know, I don't have numbers on EN World, so I can't, I can't speak to that. It's a relatively very, very small set of D&D players that are talking and active on this 5e uh, discussion group. So it's a great place and to go and find Reddit or any other. Yeah. yeah. It's a great place to go and find discussion, but you have to just take with a grain of salt any yeah. sort of conventional wisdom you want to try and take away from that discussion. Yeah. Uh, you know, as I traveled around the country uh, for work and I would play games and just random gaming stores for like an encounters night or something, I would play D- usually D and D um, the most, <laughs> I mean, it's not even, it's higher than 90% that whoever I was playing with who come every week to play for this game, um, they are never on the internet for D&D, the game they love. Yeah. Exactly. That's yeah. almost ubiquitous. They're just not even online. It's just zero. Mm. Yeah, like I was trying to explain to people that there's maybe a little over half of the people I play D&D with like, don't necessarily play MMOs. They aren't online. It's just, you know, and there's a lot of people who are, because obviously there's a lot of crossover appeal, but there's a bunch of people who aren't also. 
Well, that's interesting. So if you meet lots and lots of different groups across the country, and they're not sort of talking to each other online, do you find that the variety between those groups is quite extreme at all, or do they tend to be fairly, you know, do they play style, things like that? How, how, how does that sort of shake out? Far less optimized, for sure. Right. Uh, I, I was often surprised that, oh, this is going to be such an easy encounter. Then I'm like, oh, wow, we're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that was a well, common thing. It's about the variety between the groups, though. Is, is that yeah, so the, yeah, you get these little pocket communities that kind of play games a little differently than each other. Yeah. And, and they'll get very particular sets of like ideas and not even necessarily house rules, but just like concepts. And this is across all games like... Uh, uh, you know, collectible card games, role-playing games, uh, yeah. everything. And then, so you've got like an online community and they kind and, and multiple online communities and they'll get their own different little ideas. And usually there's only like maybe a couple dozen people who really drive like the discussion of an online community is, is what I think. Um, and then you also, yeah, get these little local things like a Terre Haute gaming group or a certain Indianapolis gaming group. And there'll be, you know, a network of maybe over 100 people uh, who play games together, uh, different games together. And then, yeah, they'll they'll have different like theories and different ways they approach things that can be very different from place to mm -hmm. place. I think players feel a little bit more like new players longer um, across all the ways, including a more creative approach to the game, you know, more willing to kind of just do whatever they come up with rather than just what's on their character sheet. I see that a lot. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a smaller shared community approach to it, a little more of a throwback. You know, I don't know if, if, if you want to change uh, gears a bit. Sure. But the, it, one of the things that Mike talks about is the rules becoming dense and sort of peaking in density and then changing after 4E and that sort of the whole industry is doing it and that now it's not that way and sort of attributing that to the same issue of uh, uh, live play and you know greater group think. And I, I don't know how everybody felt about that, but to me, I, don't, I, I didn't think it was just because we watch each other play. <laughs> yeah. Like why we're trending towards lighter systems, you mean? Yeah, yeah. I think part of that is because uh, a lot of while there's a lot of new young players coming in, a lot of us are you know not as young as we once were, and we have less time. Sometimes these heavier systems are harder to pick up and learn, and we just don't have the time to do it. Yeah, yeah, and I would also you know I, I'd wager to say that young people also have less time. You know, uh, role-playing games, main competition, aren't other role-playing games, right? It's everything else. Uh, it's, right. it's all the yeah, demands it's on your time. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So for most people, even most nerds, it's not super fun to do math all the time. Anything that feels more like play and less like work is probably <laughs> a way things trend. And maybe, I mean, maybe it's a cyclical thing. Maybe we'll see it dip back. Uh, you know, if things get too light uh, and, and so story focused, we may see a pushback and things start to get crunchier and crunchier. You know, That was going to be my point. I feel like it's a little bit of a pendulum. I think there's some fatigue, particularly in the D20, the fantasy roleplay community from the vast vast crunch and and just the depth of it of the entire third edition era between three three five and now pathfinder it, it's just so heavy and, and i think a lot of people are burning out on that i think the interesting thing will be to see what 
Hazo does over the next sort of five, ten years. That will be interesting, won't it? <laughs> yeah, the, I agree with that. I will also say that we talk about, and certainly Fifth Ed, there's a lot less rules and it's more streamlined and uh, better designed than Third Ed in a lot of ways. However, I will also say it is still actually really dense. It's only streamlined comparatively. It's still like a giant rule book with a ton of uh, complicated interactions and all that kind of stuff. That, that is true. Ghostbusters 1986 RPG, I'll give you that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it, it doesn't necessarily seem dense because, yeah, it's like yeah, it's like the fifth edition of D&D that I played, so I've got, you know, and I played a bunch of other role-playing games. But if you're starting from zero, it is not a, it, it is not a, a, a light game. Yeah. It's, it's a neat position game, well, yeah. I, I wondered to what extent, so, you know, if he's kind of talking about this group think being the driver, I wonder if it isn't other things like the role of not having an OGL in fourth edition, right? Where you had this glut of every designer was changing their system to D20 and we're all, that was like true group think, but like without creativity almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and post those years and having no OGL and that the money wasn't just from, you know, using D20, suddenly people were like, well, what do I really want to create? And they could think outside of the group think and create mm-hmm. new things. And so you've had this explosion of creativity over the last few years, and you still see that with, with all of these Kickstarter games that are just very different in their approaches, or people who say, you know, I want to talk about my favorite version of D&D, whatever it is, but change it up. You know, here's my love letter to it. Um, <laughs> that creativity has then turned back around and been really influential back on D&D and other favorite longstanding RPGs as they realize, hey, here's ways to tell story. Here are other ways to have play take place. Um, yeah, and I do think that the way, like with the Kickstarter being a big thing and the way things are published now being very different than they were in like the 80s or 90s, I think that really changes the kind of gaming products that you get uh, and the way it's monetized is uh, is very different and has definitely changed uh, the kind of stuff that gets published. No more campaign setting box sets for one. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, Except for I would, Numenera. Lo- I would yeah. love to see Wizards of the Coast approaching some of the other ca- campaign settings. Yeah, that would be amazing. That would I mean, Ravenloft is brilliant. Love it, and we've just started playing it, and I I adore Ravenloft. But I'd love to see them spread themselves. I mean, I don't have to do all of them, but spread themselves a little bit. I think. Yes, yeah. second ed. That was the era of the campaign setting. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. See it again. Well, I think we're going to have to uh, stop the conversation there. But before we go, I'd love to find out where people can find you. Uh, let's start with you. Dan Dillon, where can people find you on the internet? Not on the internet. Well, I'm on the Twitter at, at Dan underscore Dylan underscore one. Super creative. I'm hiding in plain sight. <laughs> and uh, I'm on the Facebook. Uh, I'm a moderator at the Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition group. We love to talk D&D. Uh, I'm also, as previously mentioned, Death of the Four Horsemen. And our Four Horsemen design blog is now hosted on drivethroughrpg.com. We have a banner, a little nuclear explosion banner with our little silhouettes. Over on the left side, you can see what we're, we're talking about. Every week we have a new new design blog up. Nice, nice. That's awesome. That's awesome. And uh, where can people find you, Skylar Esau? Uh, so you can email me at schuydav at gmail.com. Uh, I'm also on Facebook under the name Skylar Esau. 
and I live at 1411A Handball Lane, Indianapolis, Indiana, <laughs> 06260 if you want to send me mail or drop by. Uh, there you go. There you go. In-person call, debate. Call first before you come by because I'm not always in. But, oh, you may yeah. want to give your phone number out too then. Uh, oh, that, no. Ooh. I think I Blood gave it type. out on the last podcast. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Was that a social security number again? Uh <laughs> And uh, Teos Abadia, where can people find you? So the first thing you got to do is choose me as your favorite enemy. Yeah. Concentrate for a minute and walk around. <laughs> walk around. Right. Now, uh, the easiest is to find me on the Twitters. I am at AlphaStream. Uh, I also have a blog at AlphaStream.org where I write about fun stuff. Awesome. Awesome. And where can people find you, Russ Morrissey? Well, as you know, I don't use the internet at all. <laughs> never, never. Uh, no, you can find me at ENWorld, which is www.enworld.org. Or you can find me on Twitter with at Morris, M-O-R-R-U-S. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me on the roundtable today. Thank you very much for having us. It was a blast, man. Thanks for having me on again. Pleasure. All right, and before we go, it's time to do our DMs Guild pick of the episode. This week's pick is from the one and only Merrick Blackman. It is called The Witch of Underwillow. It is a buck fifty on the DMs Guild, and it is an awesome adventure. You have to save a kidnapped child. The villagers fear the forest, and rightfully so. When wolves drag a child into the forest, there's only one option. Find brave adventurers to follow the wolves and save the child. However, there are things the villagers aren't telling the adventurers. What fate awaits them when they face the Witch of Underwillow? There is a direct link to the Witch of Underwillow from Merrick Blackman for $1.50 over in the show notes for this episode at thetomeshow.com. I'd like to thank my guests for being here one more time. It was an amazing panel. So Dan, Skyler... Russ and Teos, thank you so much for coming on the roundtable today. All right, people, you can find me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Also, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the 5th edition D&D world I'm building at worldbuilderblog.me. You can find tons of free resources for your games over there, uh, and I'm also expanding uh, the adventure Storm King's Thunder right now by adding a giant lord. So check that out. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. Thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. And hey, if you like the show, please rate the Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.